Welcome to another terrifying episode of Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater. On the marquee this week is a special double feature from director Panos Cosmatos, 2010's Beyond the Black Rainbow and 2018's Mandy. Join us right after we get back from heating up some cheddar goblin mac and cheese. And does anyone else see that white floating pyramid? All that after these ads we have no control over. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. I'm Ashley Coffin, joined as always by my co-host in Terra, Bill Bria. Bill, darling, how are we today? I'm great, Ash, but don't be negative. I was wondering. I had a little hard time with my intro today because I was like, God, there's just so many. Let's just go with the obvious. You know what? I was trying to avoid the obvious, too, because we've heard them all before. So we've heard them all. We're getting to the deep dive. That's what we want to give you. This episode is the deep dive here. So, yeah. So we are we're going to jump in with uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow first. um, And then later we'll have our accompanying recommendations. But, yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like this is going to be very interesting for a lot of people because i don't know how many people have seen beyond the black rainbow i know a lot of people have seen or at least heard of mandy um and yeah you would beyond think, the- but i i had my red miller costume on for halloween and uh, a lot of people were a little confused well it was this it was either they were completely confused never heard of mandy never understood the costume or random strangers would come up to me on the street and go oh my god i can't believe it mandy i love it you know so it's i a love very- it my girlfriend leanne yeah. was the same thing oh really okay yeah yeah she was red so it's still got a cult-ish status, even though in the cults, like, it's very popular. But, you know, so you can maybe still be new to both of these. So we'll see. Uh, so both of these films are the only two films from uh, Panos Cosmatos, right? Yeah, so far, feature films anyway. He, I guess, did do an episode of that uh, Guillermo del Toro um, sh- Netflix. Uh, oh, the Curiosity Cure Cabinet, Cabinet one? Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. I'll yeah. have to go back and see which one it was. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, yeah, he's very very particular in his output so i don't even know what his next feature might be or when it might be dropping you know we don't know let's uh let's talk about who his father is first because yes. a lot of people might say nepo i don't i don't know this guy i don't even see i don't know i guess so but i don't know i think what he was doing is a lot different from what other directors do but oh yeah uh so his father was george cosmatos who's a greek italian film director and screenwriter who Don't has forget done the P, George P. Cosmatos? Oh, P. Pass, yeah. uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. yes. Um, which probably was like Panos. Mm-hmm. He probably oh, yeah. named his son. Is, they, they get into that with the Greek stuff. Oh, um, yeah. But let, I mean, my favorite film that he's directed is Tombstone. Oh, it's so good. Although there is, of course, debate about who directed Tombstone. <laughs> oh, there is? Yeah, because uh, 
there was this, uh, you know, we, this is not a podcast about Tombstone, but Kurt Russell and Panos, or sorry, Kurt Russell and George really clashed on that set. And eventually, I think the story is, I'd have to check, but I think George was either fired or let go or left and Kurt finished the movie. So no way. Yeah, so it's Ooh, kind drama. of a Kurt Russell movie. Yeah. But he has a lot of other movies under his belt. You're about to say. Uh, Unknown Origin, which, you know, is one of the better entries in the demon rat subgenre, I think. <laughs> I just watched it again yesterday. It, it is. Yeah. It it's, it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> and as we'll talk about, it it was his movie that came out in 1983, a very big year for Panos. For Panos. Yeah. Uh, we have Rambo First Blood Part 2. Oh, there we go. There's the classic right there. Cobra. Oh, Stallone. <laughs> Plus, he's got a lot of European ones. Oh, and I'd also love to mention um, Leviathan, which was the oh yeah, Leviathan. One of the also rans during the year the Abyss came out, which uh, also goes with the I guess Deep Star Six from Sean S. Cunningham about undersea aliens. And although in the Abyss they're friendly, in Deep Star Six and Leviathan they're decidedly not friendly. So, <laughs> <laughs> did he do Death Wish or is that somebody else? That's somebody else. That's somebody okay. Else. But that. Um, Heavily he, influenced. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. And also, he did this. The only other film I've seen of his, besides the big ones that you already mentioned, uh, is uh, The Cassandra Crossing from 1976, which is a really bizarre mashup of like disaster movie, uh, virus outbreak movie, and sort of, you know, train drama thriller. So, cool. um, was that in a European movie or is that an American? I think it was shot in Europe. Yeah. But it's with a lot of stars like Sophia Loren. I think it's Sophia Loren. Um, I love that. And uh, Richard Harris, Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, Martin Sheen, and all the good ones. Uh, OJ Simpson. <laughs> Whoop. What? Whoop. All, all those people? Yeah. All what those year people. did that come out? This is <laughs> this minute. is 76. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize he started acting that young. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think it must have been one of the first things he acted in. Orange Julius Simpson bringing it yeah, out. Yeah. Um, I did think it was really interesting that Cosmatos is he's Greek, but he was raised in Italy and then grew up in Egypt and Cyprus. And he was said to have to speak six languages. Yeah. That's just impressive. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> and so his mom was a Swede uh, Swedish. <laughs> his mom was a Swedish sculptor. <laughs> he always says, don't laugh when you try to start over. <laughs> His mom was a Swedish sculptor whose name was, I'm going to try, Rashida? Swedish is just such a funny word that I can't it's stop hard. saying it's it. It's hard. It's really funny. And I said it again. Yeah. Okay. So she's a Swedish sculptor from Sweden, and her name is Bershida Youngberg? Sure. Sure. It's a hard one. It's hard. Um, so you get this, this influence of like really cool art that his mom was doing and then directing that his dad was doing. And like, you kind of get this, you get Panos. Mm. And so the, he was born in Rome and then the family moved to British Columbia where he became like, uh, in his own words, an absolute shut in druggie. Like he tried every drug under the sun. He was just watching movies and doing drugs and kind of living in this crazy world. And, and, I think it was high school-ish he was, he was doing it. So sometimes I say it's better to get all that out of your system when you're at that age. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. But the influences um, for both of the films that have to do with drugs are very, very front and center. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to say about him or his parents before we get into the movie? Yeah. No, I think you've said the, the bulk of it. It's just um, I think of him, of Panos, as one of the last few 
it's funny because when you you know it's not like he's a reclusive person you know he does interviews he's or has done them in the past um and yet you know the two physical releases of these movies aren't you know they're very very sparse in terms of special features but he doesn't necessarily seem like the type of filmmaker who's like oh i don't talk about he's not david lynch you know in the sense that like mm-hmm. he's not oh i never talk about my process he seems very forthright when asked about you know how did you come to this and how did you capture this all that sort of thing and yet there is this air of mystery about him so i feel you know i i never like to say oh this person's the new Wes craven this person's the new whatever i don't you know that's never like that's always reductive it's never helpful but i do definitely see him on a spectrum with uh cronenberg and blinch and you know other surrealist artists who have this mystique to them in terms of like how did you arrive at this man like what did what are you what yeah. are you smoking you know whatever and yes um you know both of these films i think have been embraced by you know a a, a altered state community <laughs> if you can yes. call it that well it's you know, very culty very culty very same like, themes yeah very like head shop you know i don't even know if they have head shops anymore i guess they're all like you know vape juice places but they did in the 18 18 in 1983, 1983 they did hell yeah so you know obviously you know and, and it's not like he's not trying to capture that vibe so like clearly it goes there but and it also speaks to like um the fact that uh it's really neat to see surrealist genre work like this on a slightly larger scale than like super underground you know because it never used to be super popular at any time in history uh, you know cinematically but i guess you could say certainly in the era that these movies are set in the early 80s late 70s um when you had artists like cronenberg like lynch like um oh man why did i just blank on his name argento uh argento well argento a little bit sure yodorowsky is the name i was looking for alejandro yodorowsky oh okay uh, el topo and holy mountain oh yeah. I love all of those movies. So we have to do that at, at one point. Me and Ken went down a real rabbit hole and watched all of them. Oh, shit. That's awesome. I love him. Yeah. <laughs> and he was going to make Dune, you know, at one point. I know. Let me tell you something. That is one thing I will always regret. Like, I love David Lynch. I have no problems with his Dune. I don't care what anybody says. But... But yeah, God, I would have liked to see how weird like shit is going to get weird. (laughs) That's the missing piece. And yet I was thinking about this because I saw Alien, the first Alien at the Egyptian uh, a few nights ago. Uh, Ash and I were just talking about that before recording. And I was realizing, knowing what I know about the making of that movie. Wow. You know, Dan O'Bannon, who co-wrote Alien and came up with the idea, um, essentially pulled all the people that were working on Yodorowsky's Dune in the art department over to Alien, and that included Giger and Ron Cobb and Mobius, you know, all these artists who were just, you know, amazing at that time. So it, it made me think, like, if Dune had happened, you know, if it actually gotten made, would all these people have been available to work on Alien? You know, I don't know. So, like, in, you know, it's kind oh of my that, God, you're so right. It's that feeling of, like, you know, one door closes, but another opens. You know, it's like we could have had Dune, but then maybe we wouldn't have gotten Alien, and that would have been such a freaking bummer. So, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, weird things. Things happen, I guess, how they're supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Then again, we should have been seeing Dune 2 this week. I know, well, talk about alternate realities, yeah. Um, But yeah, so I think Panos is is one of these few, and I guess I would consider him still working, even though he's not prolific. You know, he's not uh, cranking out a movie a year sort of guy. But I think that it's really neat to have someone who's working in a genre space who is explicitly... And again, I don't want to put the label of like art house on him or elevated, you know, because those are what all is it? What is labels, it called? But, like House of the Devil and um, 
Planet Terror. What is it called when it's like a movie that's na- like from the now time and filmed and looks like it's from the uh, past? I guess retro is, this, a, is a term you could get, kill okay. it, you know, or something. I, I or homage, like, you're right. There was you know? another word that I thought that they were using really? for films huh. like that. And I can't, I can't find it in my hmm. extensive notes. If we come to it, oh, I'll I, find I, it. I do think that, um, yeah, there's, there's a couple like artistic movements that are kind of still in the midst of happening or you know vaporwave is one that's that people have been you know putting around there but also that's for music as well as films and art. yeah um something that gives you know a retro aesthetic that typically harkens back to the 70s or 80s um i think retro futurism too you know in yeah, that sense of a- like because both of these films their version of 1983 isn't necessarily the real version of 1983 it's not necessarily period it's kind of more about what that period felt like or almost looked like or you know that sort of like maybe only looked like in poster art or you know book illustrations or something well what's fascinating is we're getting what it looked like to panos because he would have been nine oh yeah and you know he was watching all these things and all the tv shows and everything is especially in mandy when we get there's pop culture pop culture pop culture but it is really cool to see the influences of all of the 80s stuff. It looks so 80s. It sounds so 80s yeah. soundtracks to these. And they they like having a lot in common and coming from someone who, you know, has openly talked about like dealing with depression. You know, both of his parents had passed and he didn't deal with that because he had said like he couldn't even watch horror movies for a long time. Yeah. And then he like was able to embrace them back in. And that's where he started to get the ideas for making these movies because he he like shut down. I don't know. Kids got some problems, but that's okay. It <laughs> yeah. usually makes for a good artist because he, something that I really got from watching both of these was more of the influences of um, male tox- toxic like behavior in this, a lot of Reagan era stuff, a lot of testing with drugs, a lot of control and identity. And like they, there's similar themes in both, but I feel like Mandy is a more fleshed out like story where Beyond the Black Rainbow is so left open to interpretation that it, oh, yeah. I, my notes for that one are so much longer than my notes for Mandy because yeah. I have a million questions that I want to go into about yeah. what's going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that in a way, even though both are not short films, you know, both are full length features, you could sort of see Black Rainbow as being quote unquote the short film version of what mandy ends up being yeah because both as, as i mean these both these films are very much in conversation with each other you know they're very much of his oof they're very much you know coming from his mind of the same you know questions he wants to address the same themes and all this um i don't know if he considers them to take place in the same quote-unquote universe i don't know if he's ever been on record with that um but i think they are the no, same year but they're same year and and there's also undeniably callback elements you know in these movies both visually and and you know thematically so i do think that you know it's it's very indicative of an artist essentially knowing what he wants to see knowing what he wants to explore and expanding upon it you know mm-hmm. you could you could see that from everything from david lynch obviously who we've already mentioned to even uh georgie romero with his zombie i don't know you can't i guess two trilogies of zombies but you know each zombie movie is in conversation with each other, but it's not necessarily in the same universe. Yeah. Um, and but each, you know, is building on the next, you know, in terms of theme, in terms of character, in terms of so, social commentary. So. And he did say, Pano said one of his, uh, or his two 
influential movies like our Dawn of the Dead and Return of the Night of the Living Dead or Return of the Living Dead. And I'm like, those are two really interesting movies to have as like your top influences for movies. Obviously, a lot of Friday the 13th, a lot of pop culture. I was like, this Mandy could just be Friday the 13th part seven (laughs) for parts of it. Yeah. (laughs) And yet there's a lot of there's a lot of phantasm in Mandy, you know, for sure. There's a lot of phantasm. There's a lot of Hellraiser in Mandy. And it's bizarre that Beyond the Black Rainbow ends up turning into a slasher at the end, you know, of sorts. Yeah. So it's yeah. So we got, you know, we got some stuff stuff to talk about for sure. All right, so let's start with Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, In a nutshell, um, a heavily sedated mute woman with ESP tries to escape from a secluded commune where she's being held captive by a doctor who is sexually obsessed with her powers inside a mysterious pyramid-powered institute in 1983. I mean, I could elaborate for 15 more paragraphs about what I think it is, (laughs) but I think that's the easier, that's the easiest way. Oh, yeah. Um, And again, it's it's a movie that is deliberately left up to a lot of interpretation it's not it's not necessarily something um where you know he's not uh uh what's the word leading the audience on in terms of like oh all the clues are there you just got to pay attention and you'll get it no i mean there's it's it's open-ended like you know there's a lot to read into it but i think that um in terms of like its stylistic influences and also you know what kind of social comment it's trying to make it's pretty clear I, I would, I would mm-hmm. say, you know, what do you think? I yeah, I mean, he he said he was trying to create a film that is sort of an imagining of an old film that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. which I think is a perfect quote for kind of the movie that we got. Oh yeah, and it's it's sometimes it is fun to just experience an art piece movie like this instead of trying to be like figure out the plot or this and that because it is it does have distracting colors and lights and like you'll be in this intense red for a second and then the next shot is all ice blue and it does physically do something to you you know Mm. you know what not on drugs or whatever these uses of colors like he's messing with you and he's messing with you know the things that you're seeing which you know can be distracting but like for a lot of people that's this movie will not be your cup of tea Oh, like yeah. if you don't like long vignettes of people breathing a lot and not blinking and, and crying and waiting for something to happen, this isn't going to be for you. But if you just kind of want to go through this journey, this trippy psychedelic vision without having to do drugs, movies like this are a really good example of, of what it's like. Cause you oh, can yeah. tell that he has a little bit of experience and it's, it's art in a way that people scoff at, you know, and have for so many years and it's always bothered me you know it's it's the sort of thing where like if you go into a museum there are the people that like kind of glide through the museum kind of you know take in here and there like wow and then there's the people that like just buzz through they're just like zip 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 and you know i know there's obviously people that like want to get their money's worth or, or time's worth or whatever but this is not a cliff's notes movie this is not you know, let me get on my phone while I'm watching this, you know, to sort of like just get the gist of what's happening. You're meant to really let this absorb you and be absorbed by it, as you were saying, Ash, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like this is something that you have to give of yourself a little bit in order to get back. But, you know, you can get a lot back. And it's good that, you know, interesting you said that because the next like he made this movie uh, after his like because of his mom, like uh, something he said yeah. is the presence of his parents haunt every frame of the film. And he was unable to deal with his mother's death. So he, as he quoted, he drifted into a slow motion mode of self-destruction and binge drinking. 
And um, when his father died, the grief he felt compounded. So then he started to go to therapy and the therapy ended up helping him access um, the things like he was blocking out, which was horror movies and things like that. So he felt that um, making this film in this kind of slow motion dream world is uh, part of his healing process. So making a sensibility. uh, He said that his filmmaking sensibility is a weird hybrid of both of them, his father's popcorn movies and his mother's haunting experimental art. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what we got here. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, one of his other, you know, bigger influences for this was his frequenting this video store called Video Attic where he would just browse the horror film section and look at the boxes, you know, of the movies he wasn't allowed to watch, which is exactly what I used to do before I became a horror fan because, and part of it was part of it. My, was, yeah, my parents had, you know, strict, uh, rules in terms of like, Oh, nothing above PG 13, blah, 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 blah. But part of it was also coming from me where I would just look at these boxes and, and be entranced, but also horrified. Like, what could that be? I don't know. There's a tentacle monster. Oh no. What I'm having nightmares about it. You know, (laughs) But that used to be a pastime of mine where I would just, I mean, my my uh, good friend um, Lee in grade school, his father was wealthy. So he had an entire wall of VHSs in their basement next to their pool. Uh, and I would just spend hours at Lee's place, like just looking at all the boxes. That's so you know? fun. But it's that thing of like letting that art and that, that imagery like create this kind of alternate version of these movies for you. So in a way... Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is one of the things I love about it so much, is is it's a movie that's attempting to capture what that might be like on film in terms of like that daydream you might have about, oh, even Alien, you know, like the the key art for Alien is so surreal and really evocative in terms of it's that egg with a little crack in the bottom and the green glow over yeah. this latticed, you know, sort of whatever the hell that landscape's supposed to be, because you don't see that in the movie. And that's not how the eggs open in the movie either. But it no. just gives you this other alternate reality, alternate, you know, landscape that you can sort of fantasize about. And so Black Rainbow feels like him trying to make what that movie is for him, you know? Yeah. And wasn't it the first year he went to the video addict was nineteen eighty three? So that's why his stuff uh, set in nineteen eighty three. Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, this movie was financed by the DVD residuals of Tombstone. <laughs> God bless it. <laughs> um, and it was shot in three weeks. Yeah, one hit, baby. And it was shot in three weeks using a modified Panavision 35 millimeter camera, um, which was suggested by cinematographer Norman Lee, which is why this movie it is beautiful. Yeah. Like it is really a cool watch. Yeah. And again, even if it's something that you don't want to engage with intellectually that much there's a lot to appreciate visually so you can just let it you know happen to you instead of having to constantly go okay who's that character why are they doing this what's going on what's the plot you know you can just sort of let it go and then think about stuff later you know well speaking of visuals like so he um he said that his modernist use of color was influenced by michael mann's manhunter manhunter you know we love michael mann here and the keep and the keep is another very how did this get made? Like visually rich, like, you know, we'll have to talk about that at some point. Yeah. Well, and then Dark Star was yeah. another influence. Yep. Another Dan um, O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon is in Dark Star Dan as well. Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Daft Punk. Um, Daft Punk. What is it? Electro. Electroma. 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 I guess Electroma. You yeah. Suspiria. Argento. Uh, George Lucas's THX 1138. Yeah. So, and that's what's like, uh, obviously, um, Stanley Kubrick for Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange. And, you know, you can really feel and see all of this the influences but it doesn't feel like he's stealing 
No, no, and no. that's what I really like about his stuff. And I would say, just because I wanted to make sure to get this in, um, and this is me projecting, so this is not something Panos has said, as far as I know. But what I was just saying about you know looking at the box art and imagining a fantasized version of of this movie that already exists, it feels like Black Rainbow is a version of that for these movies that were happening in the seventies and eighties, all about people you know uh, with psychic powers. Uh, stuff like the Fury, Phenomena, from Palma, Phenomena or AKA Creepers. Um, obviously, Carrie. You know, young women and you know prepubescent or pubescent who are just like, like, give me that power, man. Yeah. Um, and yeah, combining it with this sort of late seventies, early eighties aesthetic, which is really, you know, when, if you're looking at American history, the eighties is is kind of the success slash failure of the dream of the 60s, you know, counterculture revolutionary, where yeah. in the 60s it was, hey man, free love is going to happen. We're all going to come together as people. And if we drop acid, we're all going to see how we melt into each other literally and isn't going to be great. Yeah. And then the 80s is like, fuck that. <laughs> we're all making money. We're all out for number one. You know, in the middle, you had the 70s of these movements like, unfortunately, Scientology, but also Est. And, uh, you know, these sort of new wavy, new agey, um, different ways of thinking about like free to be you and me, uh, um, you know, uh, obviously transcendental meditation, which David Lynch is a big proponent of. Yeah, um, I can't get behind that. <laughs> yeah. So like there's all these like alternate ways of thinking or working or living that was just this huge movement that was happening. And then when you end up at like the the end stage capitalism of the 80s of like Reaganomics and trickle down and, you know. Greed is good. Drug all that fear, stuff. Drug fear. Hippie fear. Hippie fear. Um, yuppies. All that jazz. Like it's it's you know what a letdown. So so Black Rainbow is kind of encapsulating that politically. You know where you start with this dream of the '60s, and really it just turns you into a voracious monster. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the people. beginning. The beginning, how it's like the I can't I can't. I, I, Arborea Arborea is like in talking to you and you're like, okay, this is a cult. This is a cultiest cult. But in 1966, anyone was going to, you know, that's what you were looking for. You wanted to change the world. You wanted to be a better person. You wanted to blah, 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 which is where the main protagonist, I guess, Barry, Barry Niall. Is it Neil? Oh, uh, I think it's Neil, isn't it? Neil, yeah. Or Niall. Who? Yeah, Neil. Whatever. Who did he not just remind you of like a dehydrated Christian Bale the entire fucking time? Oh, absolutely. Time? <laughs> the entire so time. Good. That's so good. <laughs> I'm like, this is Christian Bale in The Machinist, but if he was as old as he is today. <laughs> and you know what? Now that you put it that way, I think probably maybe um, intentionally or even accidentally, American Psycho could have been a big influence on this too, in terms he of that character. He was acting just like Hugeman in so Hugely. many scenes, and I he's so I love the actor. I love the guy who was playing him, and I liked everything he was doing. Like every time anybody at work talked to him, he was so done with it. He was so disgusted <laughs> with it. it. When his wife, when he's like, "Have you just been sleeping?" And like when someone's that disgusted, that's all they have to do, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" I'm so no, I was I was meditating, and he was like. I'm going to bed. I'm going to hit the hay. <laughs> Good night, Rosemary. And I'm just like, you are the best, Barry. <laughs> I oh love my God. you. We need oh. to work on your foundation and blending a little bit there. Uh, 
Edward Scissorhands, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can fix him is what you're saying. I could fix him. Yeah. yeah. I was so happy when they finally wiped all that makeup off his face. It was really hard to watch <laughs> up close like that. I'm like, you wouldn't look so old if you just wiped some of that makeup off, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. No, he's he's incredible in this. And it's, you know, I think maybe people haven't discussed this as much, but and you know, but I'll we can say it here. He is the analogous character between this and Mandy, between him and Cage and Red Miller. One's a hero, ostensibly, one's the villain, but like they're right. kind of the same guy, you know? Yep. Yep. And well, and it wasn't even Barry's fault, like what happened to him. I guess. So I guess. So the uh, I guess it's a prequel, not the prequel, but what happens in the beginning, in the middle of this movie, but is technically the beginning the is in nineteen yeah, yeah. nineteen sixty six. They had come up with this, I don't know, this gooey hole that you go into <laughs> that's supposed to give you psychic Look, abilities. Let's talk about the cult for a second. Arborea is like, okay, we're doing holistic, you know, new agey um, medications and treatments to make a better world. And it's all natural. And it's like, here's the gooey hole. Step into it. <laughs> Get into it and you're going to have psychic abilities. <laughs> but but first, we're going to drop some acid in your yeah. eye oh, as yeah. you do. Oh, yeah. Which themes throughout both films um what's interesting about how they filmed that scene is they they blow it out and completely shoot it in high contrast black and white which was i can't remember i my notes i guess a movie called um begotten yeah uh looks like that and he it, it is a perfect way to make it look like you're fading and decaying at the same time because you, you can't see age. Yeah. You can't see what anybody really looks like and you can't really see exactly what's going on. All you can see is this black hole that we're like on top of. Oh, also, we recently talked about the Exorcist uh, trailer, you know, with the flash frames. Oh, yeah. It's got a little bit of that vibe, too, in terms of I the contrast. I love that stuff when yeah. they do that, especially in the beginning of Beyond the Black Rainbow, when they have like just this flash, flash, flash. Yeah. I was like, oh, OK, we're getting in it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, buckle up. <laughs> um, but it, it, it so that's where everything goes wrong for Barry. And we don't exactly know why. We just know that the acid trip went really bad for him. Yeah, I think you can make it obviously several interpretations. My personal one is that you know, it's it's essentially whatever treatment that was, whatever the gooey hole is, whatever the acid did, it, you know, unlocked that part of Barry's personality, which was always there, which was this inherent like violence and, you know, toxic masculinity aspect of yes. him. Um because later He's a pathetic person. Yeah. And later we see him having kept you know, highly detailed research notes on uh Ugh. on the girl, uh what's her name? Eva, right? Oh, sorry. Elena. Uh, Elena's the character. Eva Allen is the actress. And, right. you know, it's it's very graphic. <laughs> it very, is graphic. Yeah. I was like, wow, he really knows how to draw a vagina. Yeah, no, he's 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 looked he's looked very closely. Um, So, yeah, I think that, you know, you can interpret it as like either this this, you know, experimentation that Arborio looked into. You can look at it in a way that I was going to mention this too. Uh, you know, around that time, the 60s, the 70s, you had all these CIA experiments with you know, remote right. viewing, MK Ultra, Agent Orange. So whether it was actual uh, biological weapons or some other, you know, exploration of supernatural phenomenon as as a means to warfare, you know. So I think that's all mixed in here too. And of course, so many of those experiments led to, I mean, I'm, I was thinking even of Stephen King's uh, The Shop, you know, from Firestarter mm. and all mm. that. So you can say that the experimentation, you know, 
diseased his mind and made him crazy and set off this new persona of berries, which, you know, is evil. Or you could say it was always there and that just unlocked it, you know, but, you know, so there's yeah. there's definitely ways to to look at it. And yeah, so he he has to take drugs every day now to keep that crazy side of him under wraps. What I guess we think that the uh, doctor helped him make because the doctor's out of the picture now and Barry is running the show mm -hmm. with his little wig and his. And I love the implication that our accessories <laughs> is like kind of sort of abandoned, you know? Yeah, he's just locked away in the basement. Yeah, and like there's the there's the what do they call them? The psychonauts or something, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the stormtroopers. Yeah, the stormtrooper baby things. Um which is a great Which visual. all have to be Alina's, right? That's what yeah, I thought. They were like something. clones of her. Oh, that's great. I like that. I never thought of that. Cuz only she was the So after they pulled him out, he kills the mom and then they drop Alina, who we find out is Ouroboros's. I'm going to keep saying Ouroboros because of um <laughs> Loki. Oh yeah. Um, Arborius. Is Dr. A's daughter. Yeah. So that's who all of this is about is his daughter. Cause they drop her into this bat of goo as a baby, which yep. is real ethical, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's why it's like, Barry is obsessed with her. Barry is sexually obsessed with her. He is jealous of her. There's just a lot going on. There. Yeah. Cause she has this, whatever psychic ability that at least is telekinetic, if not telepathic. Right. Um, and, but I, yeah, and other than our our one staff member, uh, what's her name? Margot. Margot. Yeah. Can did you hear them say the the Christmas vacation quote? Yes. He. I don't know why is the carpet wet, Todd. I and don't she's like, know, I Margo. don't know, Margot. <laughs> I we died. <laughs> Which is great. It's hard to remember when you're watching that this this movie was 1996. No, no 2010. Yeah, 2010. 2010. It's tricky. Yeah, it is. It's tricky. <laughs> Because it's it's periodlessness, period ishness is is very uh, um, well done, but uh, yeah. So Sorry the one the one you. staff member Margot, I just love the implication that you know she's getting like a barely there paycheck, and she's like the only last human staff member uh, around uh, because she doesn't ask any questions until it's too late. She does yeah. start, start asking questions, and then it's over. Um, but yeah, this like idea that like Arborea is representative of, you know, this dream of the 60s and even a little bit of the 70s gone to seed, gone to rot. That's just kind of still perpetuating itself, you know, out of sheer evil, you know, almost. And whatever that pyramid is, what is the pyramid, Ash? What I do we don't think the pyramid know. is? There's no explanation for why it controls her powers, where it came from. I have no idea. It's the one part of the movie. I can't even kind of guess because they don't lead. They don't leave you anything. Yeah. It's controlled by a dial. And when it's turned up, she can't use her powers. And when it's turned down, she can. Yeah. And it seemed like she can project her powers into his head. Yeah. And he can, can, can listen to other people's thoughts, but not hers. I don't know. I don't understand how it all works. I wonder if the pyramid is their version, Aurora's version of um, like a power crystal, you know? It's very Lovecrafty. Like, Oh, that's true. That's also that. There's also that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's a word we should probably mention is that this has a Lovecraftian cosmic horror aspect to it, as does Mandy. Yeah. Um, well, Barry himself reminds me of like a Lovecraftian protagonist. Like they're all super pathetic. And yeah. They, their demeanor and carefully controlled environment and, you know trying yeah. to be dominant but they are really never able to be 
like at yeah. the end yeah. when he's just screaming at her. Yeah. I'm like, you pathetic weakling. I know. And that's the thing too, is that I, I know we're jumping around here, but I'm going to talk I'm about- I'm sorry. It, it's hard it not to. It's, it's hard not to because there's all this things that all these different elements that feed into each other. And one of the great things about the ending of this movie is that it does have this feeling of dread to it. This whole movie, uh, you know, when, when, um, Elena is escaping Arborea, you know, her whole journey there is just very nightmarish, you know, in terms of like, yeah, there's this room with this body that starts chasing her. Like, what is that? You know? Um, and yet when it gets outside into the surface of the world, wherever, whatever state we're in, um, it becomes much funnier. And then it ends on a joke. Basically this movie ends on a joke, which is yeah, crazy. a dark joke. Yeah. A dark joke, but like still it's funny to have so much of this set up. And again, you know, we've talked already about how this isn't a plot movie. So, you know, throw away all your ideas about structure and, you know, yeah. set up some payoffs, like just get that out of your head right away when you watch this, because you're thinking, okay, eventually we've gotten to the space where now it's a slasher and now Barry is the, you know, monstrous villain who's going around literally making kills of people. You know, the only kills he actually was able to make other than Margot is these two random dudes who are just hanging out and drinking yeah. beer about a fight. He kills his wife. He kills his, his wife. wife. That's right. That's why the wife is true. I would have killed her too. Yeah. That was, well, she was yeah too boring. Rosemary. So boring. Um, but, but we're thinking, okay, we're going to get to this final girl versus evil guy slasher villain confrontation. And when we get it, it's, it's over in like two seconds. <laughs> yeah. Because well, the second she realized that she's powerful and yeah. not being controlled by that, uh, pyramid for whatever reason, it's over. Yeah. It's kind of over. Yeah. And it and it and it it's not some spectacular it's not the ending. Oh, I don't want to give away the ending of the the fury. Well, it's it's not like some spectacular, you know, triumphant like using the powers against the bad guy thing. It's kind of just like he dies in the most pathetic sense, which is great. I love it. Yeah, he's pretty uh, And it's hard, like you have to watch it maybe more than one time to realize to like kind of guess what happens. Yeah. Cuz I guess she makes his feet stay where they are. I think it's ambiguous. I think that you can see it as like she uses her powers to move, you know, or to plant his feet so that he trips and falls and breaks his head on a rock, or he literally just freaking trips. <laughs> and it's like, oh, what an idiot, you know? What like, an idiot. He, he was, yeah. He was like the the devil incarnate. And then, oh, nope, he's he's gone. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like we find out that he killed her mother right, too. Right. And going into the the hole of goo, you find out that he lost the pigmentation of his eyes along with all his hair. Yeah. For some yeah. reason. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah. So I guess he had the ability to receive but not send the telepathic messages. And mm -hmm. he had a really good sense of smell because he doesn't stop he, the whole time. Yeah. And I was like, there's got to be something with that. And if I was like, keep your gross little tongue in your mouth. <laughs> but I think he was keeping it together until he kills Margot, And then after that, we get Barry from 66. Um, now, I don't know him, the way he falls and just cracks his skull. The pacing of this movie is already excruciatingly slow for a reason. I think it's when you get to the two guys at the end at the fire, like at that fire or whatever they're yeah, doing yeah. there to the end, it's like, bam, 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 bam. It's so fast. Out of yeah. nowhere. It's, it's so almost yeah. like what just happened. Yeah. But it's kind of great where it's just, it doesn't feel like it, it. 
what I'll try to say is every minute of this movie or every second of this movie feels intentional. It's not, this isn't a compromised work of like, you know, oh, they were trying to go for this, but oh, they, they missed out or, you know, there was a production issue or, a, you know, a script issue or, or, you know, studio issue because this wasn't a studio film. So right. it's definitely, I think what's great is that you have it and it's clearly intentional, you know, whether you like it or not, whether you however you interpret it, you know, it's, it's not like you can look at it and say, oh, this is a mistake or, you know, oh, right. you know, whatever. Right. Um, and uh, before we get, well, there's two things I want to mention before we get too far. One is just I know that there's going to be a lot of talk about, and there already is a lot of talk about Mandy's composer, and he's a genius. But I, I want to shout out the mu- music in Black Rainbow. I love it. I loved it ever since it came the out. Icelandic guy. Yes. Yeah, oh, the music in this one is amazing. It's so good. And I feel like people always talk about Mandy, and they never talk about Black Rainbow score. But I love the score for this. Maybe they talk about the Mandy one because he did pass away like a month yeah, after. Yeah, I mean, it was, right? it was his unfortunate passing for sure. But um, you know, I love Tangerine Dream. Yeah. And I hear it's like Tangerine dreamed all over this soundtrack. You couldn't hear this, but Ashley just made the jerk off motion. <laughs> <laughs> so just, I want you to have that visual listener so that you understand what she did. Tangerine Dream. <laughs> She's Tangerine and John Dreaming. John Carpenter right? and yeah. uh, Giorgio Mordors. No, come on. Giorgio Moroder. Whatever. I was looking at Gigolo at the same time. Gigolo. <laughs> Gigolo. Chicka, chicka. Okay. The Shining and the Risky Business. Yeah. 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 No, I really, and that's what takes me into like a trance part of watching it and makes it a little bit more of an art how, like art for me that I enjoy is like when we have just those synths going and then they'll just shine, the, the whole screen will be this red. And yeah. they'll linger on it for so long that you start to see shapes and colors and they go in and out of like, it'll be somebody's face and then they fade into this red block, which eventually starts looking like it has lime green or yellow around it. And then it fades into somebody else's face. And I just, I can't get over it. I love that stuff. Oh, me too. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the one thing I wanted to make sure that we hit uh, before moving on to Mandy is the, what I would consider this movie's biggest connection to Mandy which is the driving scenes and the shot of Barry looking at himself in the passenger seat and talking to himself. Yes. So it's that it's stabbing through the mouth. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was another one. I can't remember, but there were, there was a couple, the but, drugs, but it's so telling, but that the, you're doing great. You're doing great. I mean, I loved a, it so much. What a moment too, because and again, it all feeds into that great joke of the ending of like, you know, this dude is is this really toxic <laughs> egotist dude, male, who is fantasizing versions of himself to give himself, you know, big ups. And and then he just falls in a rock. <laughs> yeah. And he just cracks, you know, and that's it. That's and it. then it's like, you know, well, oh. that's why you can see so many of the social control mechanisms of our own, like personal internal controls and how religion affects um consciousness and society and and these are huge themes in both of these movies yeah um and like this this one is more about repression and the control of emotions i think um you could just tell he read so many science fiction books oh yeah <laughs> and and i don't know how many other people agree with me um including you i don't know we'll, we'll find out but i i've always thought of poltergeist with that last shot that very last matte painting shot of her headed towards oh the very poltergeist because every house is 
the same, you know, and it's that, yeah, it's except that, I, only the one had the TV on was the right. first time I noticed that I but thought it was as, all of them. But as soon as I saw the TV, I was like, is he trying to make me think of Poltergeist? Because yeah, of course know, he is, because yeah. he would have been nine. Yeah. And that's what he loved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the um, same kind of social commentary message there of like, you know, hey, you've escaped oppression. You know, this evil guy who's been chasing you, you've now defeated but like, what have you escaped to? Like, you've escaped to suburbia, which is just another homogenized prison. You well, know? that was the other thing. It's like, how is this girl who's so damaged has ESP? Who the only thing we really see her use her powers for is blowing people's heads up, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. How mm-hmm. are you going to conform into this new world, or are they just going to do the same exact thing with you and put you right back in a box and make you a test yep. subject? And that's like where the light triangle, you know, that's responsible for you know dampening her powers. That's another symbol of control. Like the Institute itself, it's just all reflective surfaces, the hallways, um, the giant piece of glass in the therapy room. Um, You know, in a lot of ancient cultures, the mirror was a symbol of self-awareness and consciousness and intelligence, but also pride and vanity. And that was like the visual representation I thought of the Aborea Institute and how Barry sees himself because he's putting on all this makeup, which doesn't make him look better, but he feels prettier with it on and he feels more normal. And it was just this, trying to control the environment and hide your identity. And that's, you know, I don't know. The more you dig in, the more you you can really look into it. You can look at like how you can see he hates baby boomers and he hates (laughs) the the Reagan era bullshit and the paranoia and the Cold War nods throughout the whole thing. There is so much stuff in this movie that doesn't have a lot of plot or um, dialogue. Yeah. Now, this is a movie you definitely want to discuss and have discussed afterwards in a way that I I personally feel like it's it's more of what I love about talking about movies. Don't get me wrong, I love talking about movies no matter what. I love, you know, digging into the obviously, you know, ramifications of Halloween or something, which is a very on the surface, you know, movie so so to speak. You know, it's like here's the plot, da 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 da. But, you know, it's great to dig deeper into themes and such. But I think this is one that explicitly invites you to do so. You know, it's it's not, you know, Oh, you can read into it if you want. It's definitely like, no, read into it, please, because there's a lot there, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Trying to, you know, the science run to create superior human life and and stuff like that. It's not unrealistic. The weird stuff that we're doing now and I've always been trying to do. And then, you know, who knows how many experiments we don't know about (laughs) crawled out of little black holes in the ground. Yeah, man disgust and he ripped her i love that scene when he he just slowly rips the mom's throat open and i'm like why'd you just let him do that <laughs> and and i don't know all right it's a we, lot it's yeah. a lot yeah you know we're talking about cults <laughs> switch right over to andy let's see uh yeah okay yeah uh, let's take it let's take it to the uh the mountains Speaking of various cults living in dark places, Mandy is sort of like someone crossed, I would say, Death Wish with Mad Max, um, The Trip, Hells Angels 69, put a death metal soundtrack on it, blasted it over the <laughs> lo-fi stadium. It's kind of like a torture porn rock opera with animated interludes. And I love every second of this movie. <laughs> I love I love Mandy so much. Oh, me too. And I think in addition to what you just said, which is you just put it beautifully, um, one of the things I've always loved about it is... It, feeling in the way that black rainbow was like an extrapolation of video store boxes. I feel like Mandy is an extrapolation of, you know, um, zines, uh, you know, underground, like Ashcan comics, fantasy novels, 
you know, all these things that had these just garish, like very eye catching art that you'd look at and go, what is that about? And then you'd you know read it and be like, oh, well, that's boring. But like this is be like the cover, like the cover of that is Mandy, where it's like, you know, there's just huge things happening uh, visually and and uh, you know, emotionally. Um, and yet at its core, this is a gritty, tragic revenge film, you know. Yeah, but it's and it's also a love story. Yeah, yeah. There's it's everything. It yeah. really is everything. Oh yeah. So I guess we'll kind of start right at the very beginning. Yes. Um, if you put this movie on, the first thing that you'll notice in the credits is that there are about sixteen producers, and <laughs> one of them, most notably, is Elijah Wood. Uh, so enter Elijah Wood, who loved Beyond the Black Rainbow and brought other producers in, and they saw out Cosmos, Cosmos, Thanos. <laughs> And they had a meeting with him to tell them that they wanted to be involved with whatever his next project was. They didn't care. They just wanted to back it. And that ended up being Mandy. Um, and it was also uh, Wood who got Nick Cage interested, but put in a pin in that. And we'll get back to what happened when they called Nikki Cage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this movie is, I guess, this, is this where we got like full on Cage rage started to kind of come back to be a thing? It did. Well, let me let me put up. Let me take a tangent here because as a cage lover and also as a my own you know critic self i've always had issue with the cage rage thing insofar as like people tend to use it to look at his work and his performances as you know um laughable in terms of just like oh look at this buffoon he's being a clown um let's laugh at his stuff because he's so crazy and Yes. Yeah, tell Cage, that to his Oscar. I know, tell that to his Oscar. But like first of all, all you need to do of course is watch one of Cage's more subdued performances to know that this guy has the chops. Like, you know, right. like he's he's he knows what he's raising doing. Raising Arizona. Raising I mean even raising Arizona as crazy a movie as that is, he's pitch perfect for that movie because it is visually and and tonally out there. You know, it's it's Sam Raimi yes. style almost with the Coen brothers. Yes. But um even something like, uh, you know, all you'd have to do for the, from the modern cage era is watch freaking Pig, which he's so phenomenal I did love Pig in it. I mean, because the whole time I was expecting him to put heads to bed, and then he never did it. And it's just, it's just this heartwarming, heartwarming, heart wrenching. I you know, cried like a little girl at the this, end of this that movie. Guy who just wants to care about something and someone, you know, it's like so. He has an immense range, and he always tends to play at the top of his range. <laughs> you know that's true. It's yes. not like he's a subtle actor. You know he's definitely- well. He had stuff to prove out the gate yeah. because he was someone very famous as yeah. nephew. You know, yeah. But even something like uh, Wild at Heart, you know, his David Lynch movie, um, so good. Or uh, you know, there's of course the bigger ones like Leaving, Vampire Leaving Kiss Las is Vegas, my favorite. Vampire's Kiss. Um, and you know, even Snake Eyes, even as yeah, Snake Eyes, even as something as cartoonish as Con Air or Face Off, I love Con Air. You know, yeah, they, he's he knows what kind of movie he's in every time out, and he knows what he can get, he can get away with and what he wants to portray, and be, you know, he's the theatrical guy as an actor. Like he's a very theatrical. I think he's a theatrical guy as a person too, from what I know. Oh, absolutely. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he's definitely not someone who's like he's not an internalized actor. He's not a Montgomery Clift. Or, you know, anything of that nature or a Brando um, where, you know, it'll be very like under the surface. He wants to go out there and he does. And I think that it's unfortunate that people have turned him into a meme only so far as like, you know, they'll go to it. Like if you go to a Nicolas Cage revival screening out here in L.A. or in New York, 
um, you'll get a lot of that crowd where as soon as he starts going crazy, they're going to be like, <laughs> you know, but, but I think, you know, what's nicer is that once you get past that surface thing and you really get into like what Cage is doing with, because Mandy is a great example. And that's why it's great to talk about because his performance in this is both super entertaining, super kooky, crazy, and yet at its core is so tragic and so it's super tragic broken. like this is a yeah. broken dude and Panos calls him the american klaus kinski <laughs> i think that's a great comparison yeah because oh, cage would agree <laughs> yeah no klaus was also just completely out there and he also had a reputation as being you know you go see a klaus kinski film uh, you're going to see some crazy shit but it you know even something like schizoid that klaus was in which is not like a masterpiece but like it's a slasher that he was in even there, like he's giving it his all, you know? And so I think Cage mm-hmm. is one who, no matter what level of movie he's in, whether it's, you know, this, whether it's knowing, you know, whether it's some DTV thing that he does, like he does adaptation an adaptation, whether it's highbrow, lowbrow, mid, whatever, like he just gives his all, you know, to his craft. So I have to respect him for that. I absolutely respect him. And I'm not, I wasn't, you know, saying I didn't, but I also love it when he freaks out. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. And that's especially because like, you know, you see vampires kiss and there's just stuff in there that's absolutely ridiculous, but nobody does it like he can. And what I'm responding to is like there's that episode of Community where Abed takes a class on Nicolas Cage and it's like, is he good or is he bad? And then the thesis they end up with, he's neither. But it's like, why was that in the conversation community? Like, you know, why are we saying that? that But again, like also because people tend to see genre as like inherently bad or inherently lowbrow or inherently yeah. like, you know, whatever. So I love it when he, this is a peak cage freak out movie. Yeah. And when it's, it's what I want to see. And when he does it well, like he does in this one, it's 110%. 110%. It is the best. Cause that's why I liked his um, five night at Freddy's movie. That wasn't that. Uh, yeah. Wally's what was it, Wally's wonderland. But my problem with it is you're expecting him to speak. And to be Nicolas Cage in what this ridiculous situation, and he never does, and I do think it lacked a little bit because of that. Okay, all right. I actually haven't seen that one, so I would have to see it to to know. But um, I see your point, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's get yeah. So so we we got him doing super coke in this one. We got him painting <laughs> farts reds. One of those horror revenge rock opera acid infused love story action flicks with cheddar goblins and you know psychic life or like yeah, i don't know she yeah. comes back the psychology of lsd and wasp trips or something mm-hmm. you know vo- vodka being used internally and externally so forget the plot let all that go and just get ready for a stunning colorful beautiful horrifying experience over you know just watching a movie because sometimes it's fun it's you know you got to just be more open to different kinds of film oh yeah and i think this is a great gateway even more than black rainbow this is a great gateway movie for that in the sense that you can tell people okay nicholas cage he's he does a huge chainsaw fight in this you know he does these crazy kills there's these crazy bad guys crazy evil uh and oscar nominated andrea riseborough <laughs> andrea riseborough and it's a great love story between the two of them they're so cute as a couple i um, know and richard brake and i'm a huge Brake, fan of oh my god just one scene but he nails it um, Nails it. So yeah, you can tell people who are maybe on the fence, like all these things are in it, and of course they're gonna have to see it. And then when they do, then it's that, you know, kind of gateway drug of like, oh wow, this is different. Like it's not the kind of stuff I'm used to, you know. But yet all these elements are there and they're present and 
they're great, you know? So it's not like, it's not a bait and switch in terms of like, oh, you're going to see an action movie. And then it's like, no, it's actually really slow and plotting or whatever, you know? Yes. So no, it's, no. Yeah, it's like, it's there. Like, it's all there for you. But like, you know, there's also all this other stuff that comes with it. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me get this plot out of the way. Okay. This one's a Do little wordy. <laughs> Okay, so in the Pacific Northwest in 1983, Red Miller, a lumberjack, and Mandy Bloom, his sweet but damaged artsy girlfriend, lead a loving and peaceful existence living as outsiders in the woods. When their pine-scented haven is savagely destroyed by a cult led by the sadistic Jeremiah Sand, who wants Mandy because he just happened to see her and decided he needs to have her. Red is catapulted into a phantasmagoric journey filled with bloody vengeance, chainsaw jousts, and deadly fire. Crazy mind-altering drugs and heavy metal gore. This is not your average trip down the rabbit hole. Hell yeah. Um, I don't. Even, I mean, we've said so much, and I, I feel like we have barely even scratched the surface. Like, where to start? Like, uh, I know. Okay. Uh, let's do the uh, muse the music real okay. fast because right, the music's get, so good. Yeah, it's Johan Johan Johansson. Johan Johansson, who also was famous for working with uh, Denis Villeneuve. Who oh, did the shit. great Sicario score, which is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So and uh, part of Arrival. Uh, so he passed away one month after the film was premiered. And I believe the film's directed to him. Dedicated, or not directed, yeah. dedicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, he, he did pass away. And it was that sort of thing of like, he'd already done such great, you know, scores and great movies. And yet it still felt like he was just starting to ramp up, you know, like, what was lying ahead of, for him artistically and, you know, everything creatively is like, would have been mind blowing. So it's a real yeah, loss. This is a score you could just put on in the background of like, if you're working or whatever, or just putting the movie on, it's so cool to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you knew this, Ash, but uh, not only is there a single, but there is a full album of songs by Jeremiah Sand. If you wanted to listen to him, I will not listen to that <laughs> Manson motherfucker. No, <laughs> it's 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 maybe an overdone in joke, but I think it is cute that they. they I went do to think this, that's very funny. Yeah, they went to the trouble of actually recording this, writing and recording. Well, you might songs. as well. They probably didn't know what song they were going to use yeah. for the scene. Yeah. Um. Um. So casting. All right. So okay. Elijah Wood and the team thought that Cage would be perfect as the cult leader. Mm -hmm. And so they brought him in to talk about that. But of course, Cage being Cage was like, no, I want to be the 27 year old red. I see myself as red. So Cosmatos uh, was really disappointed because after seeing all these really crazy fun possibilities for Nick to be the villain, they told him no because they didn't think um, they didn't think it was going to work and they were going to go in a different direction. But then what he had a dream. Mm hmm. Yeah, Cosmos had a dream where he saw Nick Cage perform or uh, portraying Red, and he woke up and called his producers, and he was like, "Did we make a mistake saying no?" <laughs> uh, so they called him back, and he was still willing to do the role, and they started, you know, building up the world of Red and Mandy after that, you know. And it's kind of great. It's so funny. I don't. I don't actually know the number. Uh, uh, how old Cage is? Um, I guess he's fifty-six. Okay. So this would have made him early fifties. Um. It's kind of great to have a movie like this star, you know, middle-aged older people, you know? Uh, yes. Because, yeah, you can definitely see a version of this where it would have been young lovers and, you know, all that jazz. And it would have been fine. It would have been just as good. Um, but it's kind of just a little bit more unique and a little bit more, I feel, earned, uh, you know, when you have people of this age, of this caliber, where you really sense that Mandy and Red have a history, not just with each other, but individually. You know, and, and so much of Mandy's backstory is involving like who she used to be and, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
And so the loss, you know, because there's a difference between, you know, what Sean S. Cunningham, you know, calls in his, his you know, Friday the 13th, like the untimely death of young people, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there it's horror because they were supposed to have their whole lives ahead of them and now it's gone. And when you have the other end of the spectrum, then it's all about, you know, the tragedy of of that loss of like not just not not necessarily oh we we didn't get to live our lives because they kind of did but more about you know there was so much behind us and there was so much that like you know we now now it's just gone it's just dust so i think that's what's great about having this you know these people in in this yeah and you do feel real really bad for her like she doesn't have that many lines Mm -hmm. but she's uh, andrea is such a good actress that she's portraying like all of these emotions just through looks. And it, it's not unlike what Eva Allen does in the first one. Oh yeah. Yeah. As Elena. And it's, it's incredible what she's able to convey in her big scene with uh, Jeremiah Linus Roach, Ugh. especially because Panos is not letting up on like the visual trickery during that whole, cause she's supposed to be under the influence of this, whatever. Yeah, not wasp, only you know, did stuff. they kidnap her from, or, or bikers from hell called mm. the black skulls, kidnap them who they have a little cock, conk rock that they call no n- don't don't ask any questions anyway so they call these bikers and they come and they kidnap her they drip acid in her eye and then as that crazy crazy bitch says the uh cherry on top is getting uh stung in the neck by a wasp that just got pulled out of what i believe is lsd goo mm-hmm. i don't know man i don't know it's horrific you know i'd already be freaking out about you dropping lsd in my eye but then you're going to stab me with that fucking wasp. Um, and then you're going to bring me in and this asshole is going to put his music on and be like full frontal Check in front dick. of her yeah. and be like, Are, yeah. you want this girl? And what did she do? She <laughs> laughed. Queen. I love it. I love yeah. it. And that's when you that scene is where you really start to understand what this movie is about. You're like, OK, so Jeremiah is a combination of Charles Manson and Jim Jones. I believe it was the two hippies that ruined hippies for everybody in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And he has the same backstory as Charles Manson, as he feels like he should have been giving a musical opportunity and everybody else is an idiot. and His music was the best. And he's going to use the carpenters to seduce you, which would have been better than his music. <laughs> uh, but like, and then you start to see like the movie is is about ego. It's about this guy who thinks he's so powerful because he can control other people by keeping them in a drugged up state. Well, what happens when someone who thinks they're powerful but isn't meets someone who is powerful and can do something about it? And that's where you get the juxtaposition, juxtaposition between Red and his character. Yeah. It's hard to make any of it make sense because it doesn't really make sense. And it all, you know, just kind of keeps going over and over. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that it's really interesting to see that the villain of this movie is male ego itself. Yeah. You know, I, male ego is a very dangerous thing, especially possessed by weak people. Oh, yeah. And I think going alongside of that, I, I, I have the same interpretation, but I guess a parallel one, if that makes sense, where hmm. I tend to look at it as male you know, insecurity and then the rage that follows from that. Because... Both Jeremiah and Red, it's important to remember, are incredibly prone to violence and rage. And, mm-hmm. you know, Red has it a bit more under control. He's not as, you know, 
um, he doesn't surround himself with a bunch of sycophants like Jeremiah. You know, he doesn't have people having to constantly tell him like, you're the best, you're the coolest, you 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 freak, you fuck me so good, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'll suck your dick, yeah. man. But yeah, but like, and there's that, and there's that <laughs> that beautiful patheticness that's in uh, Barry is also in Jeremiah. Exactly. Uh, and yet, I think one of the things that this also does is because this is a uh, revenge movie it's not quite rape revenge although we don't know what they did to mandy but you know there's there's that there's that aspect of it too any revenge movie you know worth its salt you can pick almost anyone that's ever been made tends to go with the theme of like how far do you go with revenge before you're essentially just adding more evil to evil you know it's like you're chasing evil with evil you're not Mm. necessarily delivering justice or retribution it's just you just become a monster yourself so and so forth oh and I there's have a well, counter I, to that okay and there's what's one thing that i that i really keyed in on which actually is a deleted scene um that's available on the the releases of the movie which i found really illuminating where it takes place early in the film and uh red and mandy are uh, driving up to their house and they need to get gas they stop at a gas station and uh, Mandy goes into the store to, I don't know, go to the bathroom or, or buy some snacks or something. And Red's filling up the gas. And along, you know, while he's doing that, the sheriff of the town that they live in comes up and starts talking to Red. And right away, the sheriff is this hugely, he's a, you know, big you know, dude. He's very belligerent. He has some issue with Red. The implication, I think, is that Red in his past used to be some sort of criminal, you know, was either running with a yeah. bad crowd or something. And, the more explicit implication that the sheriff mentions during this scene is that Mandy used to be kind of like the town bicycle or whatever. Like she slept around a lot in her youth. Yeah. You could tell something happened there. And, (laughs) and the sheriff starts using this like very foul language towards Mandy to red where he's like, I forget what he says, but it's something, you know, vile and cage plays it as like, he's slowly as the gas is going ding, 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 getting, you know, gallons going higher and higher. He's getting more and more angry. And the gas, the, the amount of money that he owes stops at $6 and 66 cents. Yeah. So it's this thing of like, because of all this male toxicity and anger and rage, it's unleashing hell, you know, and, and yeah, you know, yeah. the bikers from hell, they're all, you know, super roided out you know, ego trippers, obviously Jeremiah and his crew. So in addition to what you're saying about ego, I think it's this also this thing of like, you know, hell is not necessarily a realm that's external and yet it really does exist, but it's internal and it comes out of you sort of thing. Hmm. I don't know. I I have a, my alternate to that is depending on the depravity of the bad guy, like you have Jeremiah stands, the things that they do, if you have them do something that's so horrible, like the worst like what they do to Mandy is the worst thing you could ever do. I think that's probably one of the top three worst ways to die is sure. what they do to her. Plus you're tripping yeah. when they draw a line in the sand and, and do something that horrible. I see the things that red does throughout the rest of the movie as satisfying and enjoyable. Like there's nothing oh, that no, he, I do too. I, I know, but yeah. I don't, I'm not saying that you're not saying that. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying that there's nothing that he could do at this point. That's going to be worse than what they like than what he did. So he deserves everything that is about to come to him and in some kind of sick way we enjoy it you oh, know no, I, I absolutely th- and i i don't think panos is is trying to focus on the eye and being like are you sure you're he's not michael haneke you know michael haneke's no. funny games is like are you sure you're enjoying this violence you know or don't you want to think about that no that's not no. this but i do think no, no, that no. he's he's never letting go of the tragedy uh um of red which is 
you know, despite all of this awesome retribution and deserved retribution, it doesn't fix what's it's, broken. It's like yeah. the I spit on your grave quote. It is. What, yeah, what is it on the yeah. front? Yeah. No, no court could convict them of things that they did to yeah. get revenge or something like that. Yeah. Like that's that's how yeah. I felt after putting, you know, barbed wire around me and making me watch you burn my, you know, who knows if he'll ever find another love like that. You know, he is Nicholas Cage. Yeah. He was living in the woods yeah. and, you know, they were perfect for each other. And yeah, they Friday the 13th new blood her right in front of his face. Yeah. And for me, because we're going to have to talk about it anyway. So I want to talk about it now. Why not? For me, the core scene of this movie is actually two scenes. It's after Mandy's been killed. It's Cage having to sit through the Cheddar Goblin commercial. Yes. And just the the sheer the, that that moment's so beautiful for me. Not only because the Cheddar Goblin commercial is just bizarre and it's directed by Casper <sighs> Kelly, who did too many cooks yeah. and a couple other adult <laughs> swim shorts. He's a great kind of avant-garde, like, you know, uh artist. But it's that feeling of like the worst thing in the world just happened to me. I will always remember, this is a weird place to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Uh when my grandmother on my dad's side got breast cancer. And we visited her for the last time and we kind of knew it was the last time. And we went to a friendlies for a meal afterwards and we were all just sort of shell shocked and like not talking much. And that old um, Sean Colvin song, Sonny came home, started playing. Oh the, my God. And all I can remember thinking was like, this is the cheesiest freaking song. And I really wish it wasn't playing right now, but it's always going to be in my mind, my memory of like, that's what was happening. So that's that song. during that moment of like loss or tragedy or sadness, you know, you have this bit of pop culture ephemera that really just doesn't matter. You know, it's just sort of there in the background or in front of you, but you're not paying attention. But it's so the juxtaposition is so profound of like fucking chatter goblin, man. <laughs> chatter know? goblin out of nowhere, just barfing all over those kids. And then right after that is the bathroom scene, you know, where he Which is I that's the most yeah. famous scene, I would say, yeah. in the movie, which is just five minutes of him. And you know, a lot of people say that that's the cage rage, but I didn't get that from that. No. I think the cage rage is later. That was that was him being upset. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the fact that he's in tidy whities and kind of bloody at the time, people look at it as being like, oh, what a comedic, you know, moment. It's darkly no. comedic, I guess, but like it's sad. Like it's just no, pathetic yeah. He just he's mentally tragic. going through yeah. what happened. Yeah. And I think it's again, I, I'm gonna use the word brave. I think it's brave of Cage to make that choice because he could have you know, said to Panos, like, all right, I'm doing this in pants, you know, or whatever, you know, but uh, no, he wanted to look as, as vulnerable and, and messed up and just not cool, you know, in that moment. Yeah. And I mean, he really nails it. Yeah. He nails it. Um, I do. God, that scene's so funny when he's, he's drinking so much vodka, he's literally massaging his throat to try to get it down. Yeah. And it, that's, there's little details that cage does incorporate and put in, which makes it makes it feel very realistic, almost mm. like a documentary movie. We shouldn't be watching. Oh. And that's the way that the movies filmed feels like that. And what as far fantastical as they go with the filming, the practical effects in this are top notch. The kills are top notch so good. when it's not, when it, I can praise them when it's not Mandy. <laughs> that poor thing. Yeah. No, but they're great. Um, yeah. I don't know. And people say that this is an anti-drug movie as well because the Black Skull Bikers were evil because they got that bad batch of LSD and the evil woman in the cult and Jack, Jack Mandy with the venom right. of the giant yeah, yeah. wasp or whatever the fuck. And I don't know. And they kind of indicate 
you know, they're all supposed to stay drugged all the time so they can experience the dreams of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Plus, every toxic cult in history has the poison Kool-Aid, the cocaine, the ecstasy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, you know, um, Pano says it's not an anti-drug movie, even though he's been clean because he got clean after one of his friends died on her- like heroin. Yeah. So he was like, done. I'm getting out of my system. But I don't know. I, the fact that Red needs those drugs to continue the journey and get his revenge I think that's pretty cool. Like you got to fight fire with fire. And then from that one moment, you don't know what's real and what's not real for the rest of the movie. And I also right. kind of really like that too. Oh yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's a very, even though there's no, I, well, there actually are chapter breaks kind of in this, uh, because there's, they the do have chapter chapters, the, right? Something, the mountains. And then the second one is Jeremiah sand. And then the third one is Mandy. I think that sounds right to me. Yeah, um, Mandy's the last one. Yeah, and then there's these uh, hallucination sequences, which are animated, which is great because that calls back to like heavy metal. You know, the oh, movie it's so and, cool. And yeah, other things such as that. So yeah, by the time you're in the third act of this, like you're in an altered state, you know, and it's almost you could say it's almost the inverse of Black Rainbow because Black Rainbow you start being very inundated and immersed in Arborea, and then you kind of escape it by the end. You know, right. and so here I think it's almost the inverse where you start in a very recognizable kind of real world ish. Uh, and then the further in you go, the more away from reality you are, you know. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I really enjoy the fact that I just keep seeing it as, as what I said earlier, this this, you know, descent into revenge and really, you know, in a way that. Barry has to transform himself to become, you know, whatever you want to call his final form, the demon that stalks and kills. Red has to do that with the drugs, as you said, and and kind of transform himself into fighting fire with fire. You know, if, if the only way to beat these guys is to become one of them. So it's like, here I am, you know, this new, I am your new God, you know, sort of thing. Well, what's that right before that? He has a great quote right before that, like the psychotic becomes the mystic or oh, something yeah. like that. Uh, I think, uh, I think I may have that here. Hold on a second. I like how that just it he's talking about both of them at the same time because where he yeah. is also psychotic, but he's also the mystic because he's speaking with dead Mandy. So the quote um, is a psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. Yeah. So they kind of switched roles in a way. Yeah. Uh, even though they're both psychotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it, let's oh, go ahead. There you go. No, I was just going to say it's it's just a perfect encapsulation of of you know how they are two sides of the same coin, but still distinct. And yeah, you know, Red as as dark as he is 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 the stronger of the two, and and Jeremiah, you know, is just this pathetic worm that was never going to. Well, let's talk about Linus. Put it, Linus Roach. Linus Roach, yeah. Roach with an A. I think God so. Damn these Europeans. I think he just calls it Roach. Yeah. So um, one Bruce of the Wayne's rules dad. for the Bruce Wayne. Yeah, he plays Bruce Wayne's dad in Batman Begins. Oh, oh, I was so confused. I was like, what? Yeah. Um, one of the rules for financing this movie was Panos had to use European actors for a lot of the lead characters, even though the whole movie was set in America. Even though this is filmed in what, Belgium? Yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah, out there. Not around here. Yeah. So that's why like I didn't really know that Adria Andrea Riseborough was English. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is and so is uh Mr. Linus. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was worried he wasn't going to find an actor who could play the role as he was envisioning uh, Nicolas Cage to. And um, 
I know that Linus said when he read the uh, script, he didn't get it and had to go watch Beyond the Black Rainbow to understand that it's okay. This is an alternate, alternate universe yeah. and he needed to embrace the world and he got the role. And honestly, I can't imagine anyone doing it better. He was really great. Oh, he's really great. Um, and uh, we haven't shouted out Bill Duke yet, but his one scene with Cage is fantastic, both because Bill Duke is an instant signifier of like, you know, Predator. Oh, uh, Predator Commando. guy, yes. Uh, you know, these, these great Joel Silver. I didn't um, know they were in season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, these great action movies and he's a director in his own right. He directed, you know, deep cover and uh, a bunch of other cool movies too. Uh, sister act too. Sister I was act like, two, yeah. get out of here. Um, but you know, he's like, he's the, the old army buddy. I guess you have to assume like he and red were, you know, in some sort of conflict before maybe, maybe they were coworkers too. I don't know. But, um, you know, he's, he's that armorer who you know you got to go see to get the the gear to literally to, to battle evil um and yet even in his scene there's this sense of melancholy to it or something that it's that sort of feeling of like you know you're going into a realm that i can't follow and i know you have to go there but like you know you're not coming yeah. back. you're not coming back from this you know it's like you can take those arrows on one condition yeah make it count make i'm it like count. you're the best <laughs> um the one last thing I wanted to say about Linus, though, is that uh, he they did some method acting, I guess, him and Cage, and they refused. They oh, avoided yeah. socializing and kept tensions really high throughout the entire filming of it. Um, and I think that that's funny because <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I could be a method actor, but I think it's like really cool when people do it. And then you see that it does kind of work out. Yeah. And I think that that's like a that's a kind of a low level of method acting. I don't know how committed they were to it. So I don't know if they were like. I don't think they were like to everybody else on the set. You got to call me about my character name, all that stuff. No, no, but we just said he intentionally didn't yeah, talk no, it's, to him it's, the, it's, the whole time they were making. And that's film. fairly easy. Like it's not the obnoxious Jared Leto version of like, I'm going to send you rats. In the oh, mail I'm going to send you. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. No, it's, it's just sort of like, yeah, you, you want to save that energy so that once you do finally shoot that scene, like it has so much more weight to it of like, we're not buddies. Like we're not like, you know, I don't know his, the name of his kids or something like, you know, we're, two strangers but you know all i know is that i have to kill him and all that stuff so yeah you, yeah you can really feed a scene for sure yeah okay yeah i'm not saying it's i mean i'm not saying it's the only way to go like you know it's, it's not better no, no. it's not worse because there's definitely actors who you know can do the complete opposite where it's like i would love to be know. with ddl on set yeah uh, especially like gangs in new york which I'm like good morning to you i'll be like yeah <laughs> daniel i mean <laughs> whatever your name is bill right was bill, he bill butcher, bill the butcher bill, yeah. butcher butcher bill yeah um yeah i don't know i just i just think that that uh the guy who plays jeremiah he he really did a good job especially in his uh full frontal scene and i loved one thing that i really did like about it is the one thing a cult later probably can't deal with is being laughed at mm. so we do see like the supreme male ego supremely destroyed right in front of his face in yeah. front of all of his followers in that one scenes. And that is what kind of drives the rest of the movie. And and I know the guy said that this is one of the most creative journeys he's ever had working on a film. And I could imagine that'd be, you know, very true. Oh yeah. But yeah, the, uh, if you tried to count all the pop culture references and, and whatever in this, you wouldn't be able to. Cause I feel like the whole end of the movie is red, just hallucinating about every iconic horror movie he's ever seen, <laughs> which is really just every movie that Panos has seen. Sure. Cause he oh, sure. did tell cage to watch before the, the, the chainsaw fight, the epic chainsaw fight in this, 
He told him to watch Friday the 13th part seven so he could get that Jason Voorhees indestructibility mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. mentality. Because mm-hmm. that's the funny thing about a 56 year old playing this is I'm watching this going like he is just like hobbling around having a hard time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like somebody should have been like, Cage, fuck up a little bit. You're supposed to be 39. <laughs> but again, I, I I just I guess it, it's just me being a fan of like, you know, old Stallone, like Rocky Balboa and stuff where it's like. It just feels, I feel the weight of those guys and the lives they've lived a little bit more than I would if it was a 27-year-old dude, you know? Yeah, because no, like, I agree. Because, yeah, I mean, the visual, uh, you know, flip would have been ob- obvious where it's like, okay, clearly that dude can mess that dude up. You know, it's like he's jacked and ripped and all this. But I just, yeah. And it's almost like, I don't know, maybe this is my male ego, but if I see a dude, you know, younger than me, I think I, in the back of my mind, even now, I'm like, well... I could maybe take him, but if I see a dude Do older, <laughs> but, but if I see a dude older than me, I'm like, there's no way. Like he knows more than me, you know, sort of that's thing. That's so funny. But that's yeah, just, yeah. It's just sort of some sort of like I guess inherent like eat shit, Austin Butler. Yeah, you could, could probably could take, take Timothy Butler. Chalamet for oh, sure. I could take Timothy Chalamet. You could take him down. You could break him like a twig. I'm calling you out, Timothy. <laughs> yeah, come out here, Timothy. Tambourine Saturday. <laughs> It's okay. Just, oh. just release Dune 2 and I won't be mad. Yeah. Shh. yeah. Well, shh. Timothy. Shh. It's okay. Isn't okay. he with the Kardashian? Anyway, we're, we're not. Oh, teensy. I think he was. But, uh, yeah. uh, um, so wasn't this film funded by like a Kickstarter? Was it? I think it was maybe it was like, partially. Yeah. I feel like they were like opened it up to people being able to help fund the movie. Oh, yeah. Because it involved. They were involved with this uh, studio uh, or, you know, organization Legion M. Uh, oh, that's it. That's yeah, it. And, that uh, allows fans to right. be invested and in, in be part of the creation. of the movie. Right, right. So, yeah. Uh, so in a way, I guess you could consider that it's kickstarting ish. Um, it's okay. essentially the same principle, but um, not as uh, not as open or broad, you know, but still. Mm. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about uh, the weapon that Red forged when he obviously paid a lot of attention in eighth grade shop class? <laughs> where did it? Uh, and that's the kind of things you have to stop yourself from doing when you're watching this movie. Is going where did that? Where did that forge come from? Yeah, shut up. Yeah, let it go. Let it fly away and enjoy the sparkles. In, indeed. <laughs> well, uh, apparently it was based on the F from the logo for an extreme metal band named Celt- Celtic, Celtic Frost. Celtic Frost! <laughs> um, but I, I do love that it's, you know, this weird combination of like a scythe and an axe and it- It's completely impractical. It's completely impractical. And yet, <laughs> yeah, it, it, again, it feels like a real life version of- what you would see in an art for, you know, a role-playing game or, you know, a fantasy novel or something. And it's like that, I want that. And then you'd, you'd point that to, you know, any armorer, any weapons maker would be like, well, that's totally impractical. I, w- I don't want to make that because you're not going to be able to. And it's like, it doesn't matter about. It doesn't matter. It. it just matters that I look freaking badass with it. <laughs> Did you get mad? I got mad when he put it down and picked up the chainsaw the first time I saw it because I didn't know where that was going. And I didn't uh, think yeah. he was going to go back and get it. I was like, you spent. Four minutes of my time making that goddamn <laughs> battle axe. Yeah. And you're going to put it down to pick up your average everyday chainsaw, not even the double long? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Um, um, but again. so many little details. <laughs> there, There's a lot. Um, like the song Starless at the beginning oh, yeah, by uh, King Crimson. Uh, King Crimson. Yeah. It's from their 1974 album, Red. Which is also the name of Cage's character, which is pretty cool. I'm Probably like, how not a the details, yeah. Anos. Yeah. Anos. Um, 
so I, I would love to get to since we did it for beyond the black rainbow let's do it for mandy let's get into the ending a little bit what do you think i mean i think he killed them Oh, no, I, I think he yeah, went in there and killed them all. I think that's I think, probably the most undisputed element of the ending. Like, you know, they're dead. Like, you know, it's over for them. Um, but in terms of like where Red is, where he's going or, you know. You know, I think it's I think that every hallucination he had of Mandy up until the end, she looked like she was dying or in pain yeah. or was animated. So when we finally see her in the passenger seats. We have the two moons um, in the horizon and Jupiter, which was Mandy's favorite planet you know, there, that's where I feel like her, her soul was going to be at peace. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, I don't think he, he's going to have some trauma, but I think that what he did and killing all of them put her, got her soul out from burning as everybody kept telling her, like, she's still burning. She's still burning. I think him doing the revenge killings, getting them all set her free and that she'll be able to be at peace. And like, you know, he's just going to be really lonely. Yeah. I'm still fascinated by the connection that it has to Black Rainbow in the sense that watching them back to back this time, it really made me think about what Panos was going for with that final section, image, whatever. And, you know, of course, Cage looking over at Mandy and Mandy smiling at him and him smiling back and mm-hmm. all of that. It feels, like he, it feels like he could have dropped in the same exact line, you know, given it to Mandy said, you're doing so good. You know? Yes. And... What does I like that, that mean? he didn't, though. You know, what does that mean in terms of like, is it Red patting himself on the back? Like, I did it, babe. Like, you know, we killed those bastards, but you're gone and here I am crazy. Or is it more of the tragic element of like, you know, I I saved, you know, your memory or, you know, your, your, I, I got revenge for you, but you're no longer here. So that sucks, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I really love the sort of grace note on the movie, which is, I think it's post credits, the little shot of, I guess it's Mandy's kind of art space that she used to have uh, where she did her illustrations and other, you know, work that she was doing. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's this big new drawing of red there. And I wonder if that's Panos being like, you know, maybe all the drugs he took and all this things, all the deeds he did, red has now ascended into myth himself. Like he's gone beyond oh, reality like that. to like, yeah. you know, he's become the cover of the fantasy novel. Like he's become the rock band poster, you know, like he's now this new, instead of what Jeremiah wanted to be, which was that, but for real, where like, I'm going to be this cult leader, which everybody worships and everybody loves my music. Yeah. You know, now it's red instead, who is like, you know, the new God who it's like, no, that guy's the shit. Like, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, you stink or whatever. Yeah. So like, he's, he's the one that's kind of, He's lost his real life. He's lost his love. He's lost his life. He has no purpose anymore because, you know, Mandy's avenged. But now where does he go? But mm-hmm. he's now like higher than than the, the the regular natural plane. Like he's in another state. I of like being. that. Yeah. I don't know. That's a little happier than know. just being, you know, I didn't I don't think I knew that there was that on credits. You got to watch the credits, Ash. What are you doing with no. the Marvel podcast? You know, watching the credits. Come on now. No, no, why is everything got to be a Marvel movie now? No, I always watch the credits ever since I'll say ever since follow that bird, the Sesame Street movie. Hmm. It's because the count came on and started counting the credits with you. And then there was a post credit scene. But ever since that's funny, ever since because that was one of my first movies I ever saw that I had like a memory of. And that ever since I started watching every bit of the movie because I was like, maybe the count will show up or whatever. (laughs) And usually (laughs) it didn't until Marvel started really. And you know, it didn't usually happen, Yeah, but, but I still just got in the habit and uh yeah so now i, I that's what i do 
He gets annoyed. He he had a hard time with our double feature last night. Oh, oh, him, yes. Kenneth. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Kenneth was like, oh my God, this one's got less plot than the other. Yeah. Did you rent it or do you own it or? I borrowed. I borrowed? Uh, well, if you want to watch Mandy, it is streaming on Shudder yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, which is where I watched it. Uh, but I borrowed Beyond the Black Rainbow on uh, Blu-ray, luckily. Well, I was going to say, you know, beautiful. you can just go back and check out that last shot to see, to see it for yourself. Oh, yeah. Go have a look. Yeah. Go have a little peekaboo. Um, but that's also like what I liked about the, the chainsaw fight sequence because it's a fantasy fight. Like it might be happening. It might not be happening. Oh, the yeah. same with the uh, chemist uh, with Richard Brake with the tiger who I absolutely adore yeah. in everything he is in his, his in his Quonset hut. And the guy, you know, he that scene is so fucking weird. It's just <laughs> so weird. It is. He has a full on conversation with Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage doesn't say a word, but he 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 knows what he wants. He knows what's going on. He knows that keeping the tiger in a cage is a bad idea. So he lets it out by Lily. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And he's just like, you need to go north. I wish they weren't like that. And then we find out that he didn't like the biker guys. So right, he yeah. gave them a bad batch of LSD that turned them into whatever they are now, yeah. which it, it, that seems real intense. The uh, um. I don't even know what you call it. He had the strap on. Was it a strap on or was that what his, the knife? I don't yeah. know. They didn't really show yeah. you, but he's definitely, they're killing people in the butt. Like, and it was gross. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, how to get myself out of this, but that's an intense, that's a rough scene. But my favorite part of that scene is all the cocaine. Yeah. When, when Nicholas Cage just picks up that whole thing and is just like, oh, this is what we're doing. Crack. Yeah. And I'm like, uh-oh, well, you got to get there. You got to get yourself yeah. pumped up. Time to jump into the deep end. Yeah. Yep. And that's when, when we get to the uh, chainsaw joust, uh, uh, you know, chainsaw stuff gets so overdone. And we all know Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 does the chainsaw mm -hmm. fight. This takes it to like 110%. And we were talking, how long is that chainsaw? Like it's huge. five feet? It's huge. It's like five feet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, And Nicholas Cage still kicks his ass. He still kicks his ass. It's so cool. So yeah, I mean, the, these movies are going to be a little different for for um, people who aren't who've never heard of them or aren't in into gore mm -hmm. in an artsy kind of gore way because it is gory, it is horrific, but goddamn, is it beautiful? Yeah, and I think you know we're covering it on our horror podcast, and so there's no question that these are horror adjacent or horror inclusive where it's not just horror it's also there's science fiction in there there's you know love story and drama and and fantasy and all these you know disparate yeah. elements so these aren't quote-unquote pure horror movies um you could almost make the argument that that no movie is a pure anything but it's um, true but I, you know there's definitely like you know this is a good gateway either if you are kind of not usually a horror person definitely check these out because these also might be for you you know they're not they're not explicitly trying to like give you jump scares or anything or anything like that. No, um, they're creepy. You know, both of them are very unsettling uh, and certainly have their moments of like, you know, horrificness. But this isn't something that's meant to necessarily gross you out or whatever. But so if you're not so much horror, definitely check it out. But if you are so much horror, there's going to be a lot you'll find in both of these that like you're going to really vibe with, you know? Yeah. And it's funny because like and don't. Don't even try to read too much into it. Just let whatever happen. Like if you were to ask Panos whether the biker gang from hell, like where they come from, why they're summoned and what the rules are, he wouldn't necessarily know because yeah. he's talked about the film several times. And then he says that it 
he's not interested in the story or anything <laughs> involving yeah. plot. He calls his films collages, yeah. a mixture of moods and fears and inspiration and pop artifacts. And that's exactly what this one especially is. But they both have this just feeling of being the 60s and then the 80s. There, there's a scene in Mandy where um, Jeremiah Sand is talking to Mandy when they're, when they're all messed up, at, right when he's trying to seduce her and their faces yeah. keep interchanging in between each other. And it is so well done. Yeah. And he was doing that kind of stuff in Beyond the Black Rainbow. And when you watch that, you go, wow, this is this guy's first film. Yeah. And he knew exactly what he wanted and what he wanted to see. And now he, like David Lynch and like all these other people, even though he only has two films, he has a look and a style that I'll know it's one of his movies when I see it. Yeah. No. And I, I really, he's the kind of artist who I don't want to like, you know, beg and like push and be like, Pandos make 12 more movies. I need them. I know. And yet I really want to, because I want to see more from him. So it's that this sort of thing. Of like six years. I know. Mandy? It's like, I, I'll be patient. I'll try and be as patient as possible, but like, please, <laughs> please don't take too long. Cause we need, we want you back. Yeah, I'd like to see. Well, and I don't think this movie did as good as I think they were expecting um, box office wise. Uh -huh. It might now. I think it was six million to make. And I think box office was only a million. Yeah. But when it's not, you know, when it's produced by like 17 people, maybe that's not such a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And also, who knows? Like, by Legion now, it might be doing better. Investing. I don't know. I think maybe, yeah, maybe they'll, they've somehow made their, their, pro their, their, their budget back, but. I'm probably on DVDs or whatever, you know. Who hey, knows? Tombstone DVD residuals, you know, helped. Yeah, Black exactly. Rainbow, so they... maybe Mandy's DVD sales are, are great too. <laughs> uh, Take that Rambo money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, I think that, and obviously, I'm sure there must be a there must have been some uh you know studio outreach to Panos over the years of like hey you want to come direct a the next scream or some nonsense where it's like that wouldn't be good for him you know so I'm sure he's been turning stuff like that down but uh, hopefully he can get whatever funding or inspiration or whatever the case may be he needs to to come back. Ella Dano. <laughs> that means come here. <laughs> That's a different uh, language. I speak very childlike Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Being around all those Greeks, you pick it up. You do. Um, what do you got for recommendations? <laughs> uh, I have two. Um, one is, first of all, I didn't really mention this when, there, when we were talking uh, about the movies, but uh, something I really get out of Panos' work is that it seems, it feels very akin to me uh, to David Cronenberg's early short films. Oh um, yeah. Stereo, especially, uh, and a little bit Crimes of the Future, but definitely Stereo. Uh, but that is only available, I think, you know, maybe you can find a streaming version online that somebody's uploaded, but it's also on the Criterion editions of like scanners or something. So I'm going to go with uh, The Brood, uh, David Cronenberg's from 1979. Oh, that's fun. Because it seems to me to have a, a connection to these where it's similarly about a late 70s kind of, you know, trendy doctor who's trying to, you know, do a new AG treatment on people. Uh, they call it plasmatics, um, uh, which yes. is like, you know, a, an externalization, uh, uh, like a physical externalization of like your actual internal trauma. And it goes badly. Uh, let's just say that. Of course it does. Um, <laughs> so definitely check that out. It's a very, it's it's also similarly kind of hallucinatory a little bit. It's definitely bleak. Um, definitely like wintry and Canadian. 
on the other end of the spectrum, if you're more of a Mandy person, I would recommend this movie, which is bizarre, from 1991 called Time Bomb, starring hmm. Michael Bean and Patsy Kensett, and it's directed by this guy, Avi Nesher. It is an absolutely insane mixture of like an early 90s action film with like altered states uh, because it's about this mild-mannered watchmaker uh, who's Michael Bean. Um, and when he's suddenly spurred into action as like a helpful, a good Samaritan to someone in a, in a, a crisis on the street, um, this the army is watching the news that he happens to get on and they realize that he used to be one of their operatives that they programmed. Oh, cool. And, you know, his his memories start to come back and, Uh you know, he's this- Venturing candidate. He's he's been the secret assassin this whole time. But yeah, the movie plays halfway between like pulse pounding, you know, action movie and like weird kind of psychic horror. So check it out. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've never seen that movie. I haven't seen it since uh, I saw it for the first time like two years ago. So Hmm. yeah. I am going with 2016's Neon Demon, directed oh. by Nicholas Winding Refn. Refn, yeah. I said it right. Um, so that has uh, Elle Fanning, Jenna Malone, Keanu Reeves is in it for a little bit, Christina Hendricks, and a couple other hotties that you'll recognize. Um, so this movie visually reminded me a lot of what they were doing with this, with the visuals, the soundtrack. Um, I really like this story. I, I know a lot of people don't like this movie and it is a little slow. I love it. But I really like it. Oh, you love it? Yeah. Okay. So Jesse, who's Elle Fanning, moves to Los Angeles just after her 16th birthday to launch her career as a model. Uh, the head of her agency tells her that she has the qualities to become like the best of the best. And soon she starts to face like the wrath of the ruthless, ruthless vixens who despise, you know, how fresh-faced and young she is. Um, so as she starts to take the fashion world by storm, her personality starts to change in ways that could help her against these cutthroat rival bitches. Um, and it gets a little twisted and sick and that's what we love around here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like the the director of this. I liked what he was doing. It reminds me of also, I guess a second recommendation if you want to watch something weird like this is what is that movie where uh, Ryan Gosling gets his ass kicked? <laughs> Only God forgives. Yeah. That one. Yeah. That end drive is kind of, is sure, kind of like yeah. this, but I always felt more specifically the one where Ryan Gosling gets yeah. his ass kicked. And I always felt, I always feel rather that reference work tends to have a good thread of horror in it. Um, even though Neon Demon's kind of the only horror movie he's made, and, and even there, like you could say it's partially horror or whatever. But I would, even when I first saw Drive, when he's wearing that mask, it's like, you know, he's freaking Michael Myers. It's a Myers, little flashy, you know? yeah. Is, yeah so, <laughs> so yeah, no, it definitely reference certainly has adjacent horror, like, you know, tendencies to similar to Panos. So cool. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, unless you got anything else, that is our coverage of Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. You're all vicious snowflakes. <laughs> I love that he said that. I was like, did he just? Okay. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater, part of the Stranded Panda Network. You can find my work in the show notes, links below. Check us out on social media. You can find this show at strandedpanda.com and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to write to us at Theater at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. See you in your nightmares. <laughs> Okay, so we have a winner for our October t-shirt giveaway for iTunes reviews, and the winner is Who Isaiah Trek won. 
please send us an email with your address and shirt size to billandashterratheater at gmail.com. And we will give you a password to add to your review for verification. Congratulations. And we hope that you love your horror-themed t-shirt curated by us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.